Accountability without consequence is only conversation. You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today we're talking about culture and diversity, not with cute one-liners, repacked over-embellished fluff or sob stories that have no relevance, but with an individual who's been on the front lines of shaping both for over 20 years. We're lucky to have with us Derek Young, goes by DY, a sought-after business coach and public speaker, former head of corporate social responsibility for Dollar General, and the first leader of diversity inclusion for Cracker Barrel and author of Make My Hindsight Your 2020. Derek, D.Y., I'm going to flip back and forth. D.Y., thank you very much for taking the time and being on the show. Hey, Chad, thank you. And hey, feel totally comfortable with that because as a person with four kids, I call them each other all the time. They are <laughs> fine with it. They know I love them. That's all that counts. That is what counts. That is what counts. All right. So we always like to start with kind of a, just an icebreaker question. And we've all been spending more time at home than any of us probably ever planned. Would love to know if the extra time at home has allowed you to reconnect with a passion or a hobby or, or do something or stay focused on something that maybe you hadn't had as much time uh, with before. So that is a phenomenal question. And the answer is heck yes. I <laughs> I have been saying for two decades that I was going to put my programs. I have over 87 training programs that I provide to my clients. And I've been saying for 20 years, I was going to start putting my sessions online, online, online. (laughs) I travel so much. I just have never, well, in the first three months of the pandemic, I think I put 26 programs online that are available on my website, DerekYoungSpeaks.com. So I just had no more excuses and I <laughs> had to make it happen, man. So yes. <laughs> it's amazing what we do to fill the time. And as much as we all love our family and we love the time that it allows us to have with them and dinners, there's, you know, too much of a, of a good thing. Sometimes you need a little break from, so it's great to have those things that you can do to, to, to distract and stay focused on other elements of, of our existence. That's exactly right. All right. So let's jump in. How did you become so passionate about culture, diversity, and really the the difference between mentorship and sponsorship? You know, I am a person who believes in the word that you should pursue your calling in life. And I know that's not a word we use a lot in America in particular. For me, though, Chad, calling is about that broader impact that you're uniquely equipped to make. And what I found in my experience first as an auditor, economic research analyst at the Federal Reserve, then as a communication analyst at Sprint, and then as a career development manager at En-ROADS, what I began to see working with my organization and anyone else I worked with is that the culture was really what dictated overall, not just profitability and sustainability, but just the person's love for the experience of going to work every day. And there's that legendary quote from Peter Drucker that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. Well, at the Fed, when I did economic research, that's where I learned how to do strategic planning on really big, large-scale organizations. Well, what struck me is that what we really need is culture strategies. So in my view, 
when culture and strategy eat together, that's actually the best meal you could have because I think <laughs> it's where you produce the greatest outcome. So that's more in, from an organizational look at culture. Individually, you and I as leaders, you and I as people who want to make positive things happen, obviously we benefit from the advice, the counsel, the perspective of other people. So it's sort of like we're sort of developing our own little personal culture, if you will. Well, everybody knows what a mentor is, right? A mentor, and this is me being short and sweet, advises and connects, right? I sit down with Chad, he gives me some tips. I run a few things by him. He says, hey, you need to meet Charlotte. Charlotte is phenomenal in banking. She'll really give you some good tips. That's mentoring, connecting, advising. Sponsors, on the other hand, sponsors are one level above mentors because they place and protect. Sponsors are the people who look at your career, who have the level of influence and sometimes flat out power where they can dictate your next opportunity. They can say to someone, even though she's green, we're going to go ahead and let her do that role for another six to nine months so she can get better at it. So where people are in their career, I talk about this in my book, where people are in their career, mentors tend to happen a little bit more organically. Sponsors tend to happen totally organically in my experience, meaning it's sometimes easier to sort of seek someone as a mentor but in my experience, Chad, sponsors in many cases wind up picking you based on the kind of mentee you've been. I, I love that differentiation, right? Because it's it's subtle, but it's important. And, and I've and as I think back over my own career, my own life, I can definitely start to see the difference between those mentors and those the sponsors, the ones that kind of took me under their wing and I wasn't even sure why they were doing it, but it was it turned out to be an extremely beneficial uh, relationship as we went through it. And so when we look at, at organizations that are focused on I me, mean, culture and diversity is a primary focus for a lot of organizations today. I'm curious what you've seen uh, with working with some of your clients, some of the challenges or mistakes that they're making when it comes to approaching culture and diversity. Yeah, so this is my 30th year working in this space of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Obviously, Chad, with the wake-up call that America had this summer, I have seen an explosion in the number of organizations, and I'm talking about education, corporations, government. I'm talking about every sector where people are saying, we have just had a wake-up call. We have got to get better. Here are some of the biggest, quote-unquote, mistakes I see people making. Number one, they don't link their commitment to DE&I to the strategy of the organization. Clearly, you put a group of executives in a room, you said, here's where we want to be as an organization in three to five years. So you strategize that. But to not connect the diversity, equity, and inclusion effort to it is a bit kind of outlandish because diversity, equity, and inclusion to me are the gateway to get everybody more engaged, to get everybody to have a sense of ownership. Secondly, what I find is when a lot of organizations try to start these initiatives, they get too gimmicky and they, they get too focused on events <laughs> yeah. rather than talking about real leadership skills that people can begin to apply so that they leverage the diversity of their team. They are more inclusive. And then number three, and I'll share one more after that, is they don't use one of my age old platitudes. And it is this accountability without consequence 
is only conversation. What do I mean by that? At the end of the day in an organization, if someone experiences a racist, a sexist, an ageist statement or situation, they ultimately want to know that you will, number one, you will protect them. Number two, you will defend them. And how do you do that? You do that by delivering corrective consequences to anyone who would violate the values of a coworker or a teammate or an employee. So to say that simply, one of the major mistakes I see organizations make, and this is what I help my clients not do, and that is they don't have that top-down cascading commitment to consequences that are corrective for a behavior that destroys diversity, equity, and inclusion. The last thing I'll tell you that I see is a really big mistake is in people's zest for DEI and people's desire to see that be a reality chat. They do so much talking about what diversity is, what inclusion is, what equity is, but they don't do enough of showing the phenomenal talent, skill, and impact of anybody who does not look like what maybe your normal or traditional employee looks like. Those would be some of the biggest things that I'm usually working to help companies, organizations overcome. Well, and that's, and that's a big one, right? The, the talking about it without action, right? So we're going to talk about it. We're not, we're not going to do anything different. And some people have I've seen have a tendency to think just because I'm talking about it means I'm taking positive action. Well, no, that just means you're filling a room with hot air. You're not doing anything. And it's more, it's less about, I mean, words are important, but in the organizations, it seems to be about the actions. And I really like that, the, the platitude, the accountability portion of it. I think there's a challenge sometimes for people to understand what is appropriate corrective behavioral, you know, approaches to that. Some people would probably say, okay, well, depending on the, like, how do you rate it or how do you scale the particular situation? It's all very sensitive. It's all very raw right now, especially because of, of the summer, as you've mentioned, and it's sensitive as it should be. It should be approached with respect. And I think it starts, you know, as you've pointed out, it starts with the individuals. And the individuals in each organization is, is kind of where it starts, starts with that, that value and that culture. But there's always these little voices in the back of people's heads. So how do you help organizations overcome what you know is probably the unspoken uncertainty? That's some really good stuff because you're hitting at what sometimes is the issue. And this is what we help our clients figure out. One of my very good friends, one of the people I admire most in the United States is David Roush. He is the director of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, the TBI. And one of his employees was taking me on a tour of what they call the Infusion Center. And that is that sort of high-tech room where they take in data from all over the world, all over the country, all over the state that relates to crimes that they are investigating. Well, as I was taking the tour, Chad, I saw a, a screen and it had a bunch of red dots on it. And I said, what, what, what's that? And they said, that's our sex trafficking board. Now notice, they didn't say, that's our board where we capture those instances where someone might have possibly come upon a young person or a young woman and kidnapped her and now is using her for horrible, illegal purposes. No, they called it what it was. What I have found is that all these issues, when we think about DE&I, can be situational, right? But... We all know how we feel if someone commits a microaggression against us. So what I've said to my clients is, let's just turn the camera around and say, now it's someone else's turn. 
They have brought to you how they feel they have been microaggressed, if you will, against. So let's just play this out. If this person defrauded the customer, what would you do? If this person committed sexual harassment, what would you do? My point is, what I teach is, let's just use other values violations as our example, as our guide to say, how do we handle those things? Again, to your point, all of these are gonna be situational, but here's what begins to happen, Chad. Number one, precedents start being set. That's yeah. one. And number two, messages start being sent. Hey, uh, gang, you can't get away with that anymore. Hey, um, it might behoove you not to say that joke again. So my point is, sort of the haze of it all, I think can sometimes best be handled if we just look at similar values violations and how we responded. And then we just start, in essence, sort of publicize, not the individual, but the decision so right. that that ripple effect is created and people get a sense of what should never happen again. Well, and I think that's, I think that's an extremely intelligent way to take the unfamiliar, make it familiar. Right. Well, so that's exactly right. we're used to, we have these other value-based decisions that we make every day. Everybody makes them. And because of the emotional charge that is in some of these other areas, why it doesn't have to be that different. It's still exactly. a values-based erosion, so to speak. Perfect. Right? And do you see, and I bring this up, this is very uh, topical because I was just talking to a, a, a colleague, friend who uh, is a female and was expressing, she works in, a, I, I will not name company names, but she works in a construction type company. And she was illustrating a situation that was like over the top sexual harassment, like just ridiculous. And I'm curious if we started having a conversation, if you see it different at different levels of acceptance and uh, investment in DE&I based on industry? Are some industries dragging their feet, so to speak, do you see? Or because it has been so heightened over the last six, eight months, is it really just a tidal wave that's just going through businesses as a whole? Really great question, Chad. In my, so I'm going to take 30 years and six months and sort of put them together, right? <laughs> I would tell you my 30-year career says more often than not, organizations that are high customer front-facing are where you're more often than not going to see that greater longer-term commitment to DE&I, right? Okay. Because they are dealing with customers. But that more back-end business where the quote-unquote general public never even interfaces with that company, that is historically maybe where I've seen less of a commitment to it. So that's generally speaking. Now, Based on what I've seen in 2020, I've seen an uprise in practically every different sector. I mean, I've been very fortunate. I, I tallied it up one day, and when you take all the industries and sort of sub-industries that exist in the U.S., I've worked in 48 different industries with all sorts of organizations from mom and pops to, as I said, the Federal Reserve Bank, which was $300 billion in assets in the 80s when I worked there, all right? But the point is, what I'll tell you is my, my view of it is every organization that has on its website negative terms. Oh, wait, that doesn't exist, does it? Nobody's website say, yep, people stink and we don't have nothing to do with them. <laughs> yeah, we judge you at the door based on what color your skin is. Nobody, no, everybody's values are wonderful and violinish, right? Right. <laughs> point is then, Chad, if you were willing to put vi violinish values on your website, 
you should be willing to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion because guess what? They are one in the same. Diversity says I care about the unique perspective and potential of every human being in this organization, regardless of if they're a blue shirt wearer or a glass wearer or a salt and pepper bearder. You know those salt and yeah. pepper bearders, Chad. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So, so if you're willing to say that we are, we value caring, commitment, respect, all these beautiful words, it means you've got to say we also value diversity, equity, and inclusion. Absolutely. And so there was a phrase when we were getting, uh, when we were preparing, going back and forth, seatbelt session. And I, I don't know what that is, um, what a seatbelt session is, but I would be curious to know, is this something that you run your clients through? Is it, a, is it part of, a, of the approach? Help me, help me have some context with it, because it sounds amazing. I just want to make sure I know exactly what we're talking about. So I had it as a term, but I'll tell you how it came up. When I was a Dollar General, I got four promotions in seven years. I feel like Grant Cardone, my income had a 10X, right? <laughs> uh, but I had a 10X um, on my income during that time. And again, Dollar General was a phenomenal work experience for me. When I got that fourth promotion, a guy who was not on my team, but a guy I was familiar with, sort of a peer, he, he just walked into my office. He didn't have a meeting or anything. And it's a, it's a whole long story, but <laughs> ultimately said to me, he said, man, what are you doing, man? Every time I look up, you get another promotion. He's like, this is crazy. I've never seen anybody get promoted like this. What are you doing? And I said, seatbelt session. What? I said, yeah. Every quarter, I meet with my mentor sponsor, whose name is Bob, and I sit in a chair, and I put on an imaginary seatbelt. <laughs> and I ask the question, Bob, what do I need to fix? And for the next 30, 60, sometimes 90 minutes, Bob blasts me with truth, conjecture, perceptions people have about me that I may not be aware of, sometimes flat out lies people have told on me, <laughs> the seatbelt. And I said, what I do is I take it. I don't defend myself. I don't explain it away. I just take notes and I creatively clarify what he said. Once the thrashing is over, <laughs> I take off the seatbelt and I do three things. Number one, I try to do everything Bob said, starting with the stuff I hate and disagree with the most. Number two, as soon as I have success with what Bob told me, I thank him profusely. Number three, after I have thanked Bob, I teach what I learned to other people and it cements within me. Now, if you were to go back and interview 100 people I worked with at Dollar General, all 100 of them could say, well, D.Y. didn't do this, or he never was good at that. He, he, he screwed this up. And I'll, I'll, I'll go, yep, yep, and yep. <laughs> at that seatbelt session, helped me focus on the things that were most important in the eyes of my sponsor. And that was what I felt was the key to my rapid rise at the company. Well, and, and that is an approach that I think uh, anybody can benefit from because in order to pull those off, in order to make those actionable, in order to hear the feedback and internalize it, you have to be in a place where you believe your sponsor is coming at you with positive intent. 
that they're not there to tear you down. They're there to increase awareness. You also have to be strong enough in character to accept that some other people's perceptions may be their reality, but not necessarily a reality shared by many. And that has to be adjusted as well. That, those character traits, I think, serve anyone well, not only in business, but in, D, in, in diversity and in, in equity and inclusion. You have to be willing to look at what are you doing to contribute to it, whether it is your perception or someone else's, and accept that. And I think that's a huge uh, skill set that many people could benefit from. Hopefully something you get the opportunity to teach your clients. Yeah, it's, it's one of the key topics in my book because it has been a game changer for people I've been sharing that with for over 20 years. And two points, just as a carryover from what you said. You know, one of the things I talk about with my clients as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially in 2020, is that the murder of George Floyd in the midst of the pandemic, with the other nationally recognized murders that had taken place of Black citizens, created in a lot of Black people, in my opinion, this is one dude's opinion, a... I've been dealing with this for years, but I've never had the courage to talk about it. So all around America, Black employees, Black students started to talk about not the the love they have for the organization, but those bad experiences. Again, those racist moments, those microaggressions. To your very point, Chad, about having the maturity and the security as a leader to hear that kind of thing, it's what I call the 95-5 rule. And what that means is 95% of my experience was great, loved it here, treated with respect, treated as a member of the team, really felt like I belonged. But that 5% where somebody shut me out, where I overheard a conversation where somebody clearly said, we don't want any people of color to be on the leadership team, where I know for a fact that some of the, my white cohorts were having their ideas listened to and pumped up, but my ideas were being ignored. See, if you're going to have the real maturity of a leader to advance or transform your culture, you've got to be willing to accept my 5% in the same way you accept my 95%. And these are key points, Chad. One, especially if you would never contribute to my 5%. One of the things I find is people who would go, I would never do something racist. I would never do something discriminatory. And they almost shut down in being able to accept that, well, you probably wouldn't or haven't, but that person sure did. Right. You've got to be able to accept my 100% because by telling me, well, D.Y., look at the 95%. Come on. It invalidates me as a total person. Even though you're only invalidating part of my experience, you're still invalidating me as a total person. And then lastly, Chad, it also says, I don't see you for the totality of what you experience. I see you for that piece of you, which gives me comfort, which gives me peace of mind. And once again, all those components from a seatbelt standpoint, in terms of really hearing hard feedback, will transform a person will transform a person's relationship with their employees. And obviously, if you expand it, right, will expand a team, a department, and maybe even a whole organization. 
Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal exercise in understanding how to recognize and I like that word totality, the totality of another person through their experiences. It doesn't mean because they're expressing they had the experience, they're denigrating you. It's just this is the experience they had. So to so to not give it the same weight you would your own experiences is that dismissive approach, which is part of the problem. So getting back to that place where you can truly be comfortable self-assessing or having a sponsor or a mentor help you self-assess. There's a lot of people that have that little voice in their head and they go running, screaming out the door because they don't want to admit that. And I have to believe that's got to be a challenge as these organizations embrace DE&I. They're going to have some ripples for, I don't know, lack of a better word, some, some people that just don't know how to handle it. Have you seen that in some of the organizations you've worked with? I have, and um, well, I've got a session I do called Framing Your Leadership Legacy, and I present 15 different little four, four vignette components of what I think a person who maybe is new to leadership or wants to get better at leadership can begin to learn from or use as a base. One of those little four-pronged components is that leadership comes down to four things, modeling, teaching, promoting and protecting. And what I found in my experience, Chad, is that what tends to be the greatest weakness, the greatest limitation is that fourth one, protecting. That's once again, that holding people accountable. Well, for so much of the work I do, I basically say to the leadership, I want to help you, but let's just go ahead before we sign an agreement. If you aren't willing to model, teach, promote and protect these values. I don't even want to take your money like that because it's going to be a waste of time. I'll still get paid, but your organization isn't going to change because we all know the speed of the leader determines the speed of the group. So that for me is the key thing is when the leadership says, I'm going to model what it means to demonstrate that, yes, I have unconscious biases that have maybe negatively impacted how I do what I do. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to show you the progress. Hey, I, as a leader, I'm going to sit you down as my direct reports, my executive team or my manager team or my regional team and walk you through one-to-one plans on how you are going to now work on your own biases, how you are going to be more proactive, including in including people you haven't done so historically. So that ultimately is the key to any change in an organization is that the leaders first model it, the leaders are willing to teach it, the leaders, not just once, not just after DY's workshop, but over the next 18 to 36 months. Because what I say to my clients, Chad, is this is my 35th year working with large organizations. My experience, it takes 18 months to change a culture and another 18 months to fully inculcate those changes. Because, Chad, the first 18 months, people were kind of going, they were going, you know what, they're still talking about this stuff. (laughs) They're still doing it. So it takes about three years in one guy's experience to change. And so what I mean by that is we were this in 2020. We are this in 2023. Not we're becoming, but the change in my experience is 18, 24, 36-month process. So that's why, again, that model, teach, promote, protect has to start at the top. 
Yeah, I love it. I love it. I, I could go on with, I mean, I could talk to you for hours on this, but out of respect for, for time, you got to st start wrapping us up. We ask all of our guests two standard questions at the end of every interview. And you as a sought after public speaker, author, you know, change agent for this stuff, you, that means you're also a prospect. No doubt you're getting prospected to other people think they've got something they want to do business with you. I'm always curious, if somebody doesn't have a trusted referral into you, like somebody you trust brings them in the door, if they don't have that, how does somebody capture your attention and earn the right to time on your calendar? What works best for you? So that's a really, really, really important question. I just was talking with my wife yesterday who started our consulting practice um, 18 years ago. Now my wife is a chaplain. So she still works in the organization, but she's primarily focused on her duties as a chaplain. But we were saying we are giving people naturally. So the more giving someone is, the less technique you have to be to get with them. <laughs> yep. Right. And also the more giving someone is and the more they have the time to give. Because the other var variable might be you you're very giving, but your time is really short. So the three things that stand out to me when I think about this question are number one, does the person personalize what they are sharing? through their observation of you, through their study of you, their research of you, or am I just getting the standard, I would like to meet you, other <laughs> human being. I wonder if we can build a bridge. Right. So is it, is it personalized or is it sort of robotic? Secondly, to what degree is it short and sweet? There's nothing, when I say worse, there are clearly things worse, but it's a phrase we obviously use, but there's nothing worse than someone with a 16-paragraph introduction <laughs> about who they are and where they came from and they went to school with Abraham Lincoln. It's like, look, man, okay, great president. Yeah, right, okay, get to the point. So how can you say what you wanna to say to a, a person you've never met? And then I think the third example or third point, Chad, for me is how do you tie into something that has a collective or shared significance? Again, based on what you know, based on what you presume about that person, versus just it being a one-way thing, either one way for you or one way for them. And just one little caveat, 3A, never use, I'd like to pick your brain. Just go ahead and delete that from <laughs> your, your vernacular because that just sounds gross and it just speaks. I think it's a phrase that we've used for a long time in America at least, but it just almost says, I want to get something from you. And yeah. I just wouldn't recommend using that. I love it. That's extremely practical advice. And so, all right, last question. We call it our acceleration insight. If there was one piece of advice you could give to organizational professionals, sales, marketing, whatever, one piece of advice, just one, that if they listened, you believe would help them achieve or exceed their targets, what would it be and why? It would be to, it's three parts. Go to derekstore.derekyoungspeaks.com, purchase Make My Hindsight Year 2020, and take the action plan template at the back of each chapter as serious as you did your undergrad or your grad degree. In that book, what I do is I say what happens to people, Chad, they read books, they go to seminars, they go to the podcast, but here's what they don't do. And this is going to sound almost too simplistic. When you get a nugget, you go, I like that. I need that. Two things, schedule the day and time and event where you're going to apply it. it I've, I've helped over probably 500 people get promotions since I've been doing this kind of work for 30 years. It is a game changer. 
Nice. Love it. DY, where do you want? So obviously the website, is there any place else you want us to send them some way you would like people who want more information, want to get in touch with you? What's, where do you want us to send them? We want to make sure you get some bang for the buck on this. I appreciate that. The best place to go is right to the website because that's where you're going to see my story. I, I tell my story, Chad, by talking about a concept, give people their flowers before they die. And in sharing that in my website, it's on the About DY tab, people will see just some of the people that I am thanking for having a positive impact on my life. But I think when you get to kind of see a person's background and how they feel about their background, it clues you into the real calling that they have. So DerekYoungSpeaks.com, Chad, would be the best place for people to go to find out more. But to get the book, just as a shortcut, store.derekyoungspeaks.com. Excellent. Diva, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show. Again, I'm sorry we had to reschedule, but really, truly appreciate us sticking with it. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. and want to thank you for your time. Thank you. And I will tell you this. A lot of people are podcasting. A lot of people are sharing. But your level of questioning, the the depth, the the specificity, the quality of your questions, Chad, are off the chain, man. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. All right. All right, everybody. That does it for this episode. You know the drill, b2brevexec.com. Nobody's going out anywhere, so share it with your friends, family, coworkers. Hell, make your kids listen to it. Leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time, we at Value Selling Associates wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.